0: Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. When award-winning author of American Overdose, Chris McGreal, wrote his book, he was trying to answer two questions. How could the opioid epidemic go on for nearly 20 years? before people began talking about it? And why did the opioid crisis happen in America and nowhere else in the world? As we conclude our series on American overdose, the answers to these questions and more will become clear. In this, the third and final show in our series, we sit down with Congressman Hal Rogers, who introduces us to an initiative in Kentucky called UNITE, that's changing the face of addiction in their state. We also talk with Dr. Tom Frieden, the former director of the CDC, who was the first government agency to sound an alarm over the opioid crisis in our country. As we begin, American overdose author Chris McGreal discusses more of the reasons why we, as a country, were so slow to react to the opioid epidemic.
0: There's a lot of things at work here, and they all kind of reflect each other. You know, the impact is only possible because of the mentality of the FDA and its relationship with the wider industry. Um, I certainly think that the industry's influence in persuading very large numbers of members of Congress that the issue is the patient, not the pills, gave uh, the FDA a free hand uh, to go on doing that. Later... When it becomes much more apparent that there really is an issue, I think that the FDA has become more politically sensitive, although it's gone on approving these drugs. It has also repeatedly promised to take on board the public health. But to some degree, uh, the FDA was insulated by the fact that the, uh, the drug companies had bought the compliance for all intents and purposes of most members of Congress. And how do they do that? Well, Partly they do it because the public's not paying attention. A member of Congress on a completely different issue once said to me, you know, the, the lobbies that spend all this money can pretty much get what they want as long as the voters don't mind. When the voters start paying attention to an issue and they have an opinion on it, the lobbies are not nearly as effective because ultimate power lies with the voters. Um, and I think that was definitely... True in this case is that so long as the voters weren't focused and weren't weren't considering this, um, essentially the pharmaceutical industry had co-opted Congress at the very least into buying into its policy, and that continued to give a free hand for the FDA uh, to do what it was doing.
1: In 2003, voters weren't focused on an emerging health crisis, but Congressman Hal Rogers from Kentucky was. He talked with me about the group he
2: founded, Unite. Getting the pushers off the street was probably the most urgent thing we needed to do, but it would not solve the problem alone. Uh, We decided in that group not only to go undercover and arrest pushers, but also to talk about how we treat those who are addicted and how do we educate young people uh, of the dangers, the deathly dangers, of this uh, this pill. But then we decided that we had to do something about education, so we, we uh, put counselors in all the schools. We started uh, Unite Clubs in the schools with wholesome activities after school uh, to occupy the Devil's Playground. Mm. Uh, and uh, then we focused on treatment. We helped start a few treatment centers, mainly because we were able to give to uh, addicts who were poor and, and nothing more, we would give them a treatment option. You gave them vouchers, didn't a voucher. you? voucher. Yeah, which is revolutionary. Revolutionary, and, and uh, they could spend that anywhere in the country. Hmm. Uh, but it was enough that it enabled certain uh, civic groups to start a treatment center, utilizing the payments on those vouchers to treat people. So we sort of spawned a new industry uh, with those vouchers. Uh, We started drug courts in every county. Drug courts really work. And I would go to some of their graduation services where the recovered addict speaks to a public audience with the judge behind him or her, uh, and they would tell their story, bring tears to your eyes. Many of them would turn to the judge and say, you saved my life. So those volunteer uh, judges are really big time. Congressman Rogers talks about how the Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit got its start. So after a few years of doing this work, building up the organizations, expanding our coverage of things we could do, we said, you know, this is working. Uh, this is the way to do it. you got to have a holistic approach. You got to stay with it year in and year out. You got to have dedicated, exciting people to, to take, take part as a volunteer. We would start uh, coalitions in every county of hundreds of people, local citizens, many of them churchgoers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those coalitions were the basis of our army of volunteers to attend court hearings, be sure that things were going right in court. Uh, to uh, help with uh, people who were addicted. They would go there to sit in the audience quietly so that the prosecutor and the judge and everybody else knew we were watching. Mm, okay to be sure the gotcha. justice was done gotcha uh, They never spoke. they just sat there silently watching. Mm. Uh, so after a few years we said you know this is really working this this model, uh, it, it needs to be duplicated around the country. And at first, we tried to talk individually with different people around the country to start up something like this with little result. This is pretty complicated, and it takes somebody uh, like myself, who is focused on it year in and year out, day in and day out, mm-hmm. to stay with it a long time. So we said, why don't we start a national summit? And let let, uh, Unite put it on, and let's duplicate what Unite is locally. Let's duplicate that writ large. Uh, We want uh, people of all walks of life, all disciplines that are involved with this problem, ministers, nurses, doctors, lawyers, politicians, you name it. And so the summit, the first summit we had was in Orlando, Florida. Uh, We got on the telephone and recruited people from all over the country to come, not knowing if they would. Well, lo and behold, 750 people showed up. We said, "Okay, this is going to work. This year, over 4,000 people attended
1: Congressman Rogers' Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit in Atlanta, Georgia. In 2011, the CDC was the first governmental agency to sound an alarm over the opioid epidemic. I asked the former director of the CDC, Dr. Tom Frieden, to describe the impact declaring the opioid crisis and epidemic had on combating the problem.
3: We did two things. First was to sound the alarm, to say, hey, this is a huge problem, folks. Pay attention. Let's do everything we can to stop it. And second, Let's begin setting up the whole system that we need to understand it, to stop it, to track it, to find positive uh, results in different places. And that latter took a lot of time. Uh, We didn't first understand everything about where it was spreading. As you mentioned earlier, we didn't have prescription drug monitoring programs up in most states. And in fact, as late as 2016, I could say there isn't a state in the country that has a. a uh, PDMP that has all of the attributes it should, real-time, universal, actively managed. So one of the things that we began looking for w- were the communities, programs that were working. Uh, it's one thing to say, there's a really big problem. It's another to say, if we do these one, two, three, four, five things, we can do more to reduce that problem.
1: So you uncovered a lot of statistics on this that revealed the fact that this epidemic was occurring in the white population. And some think that that had something to do with this call to action. And that meant that it was a disease and not moral failing. Can you comment on that?
3: I don't think this had to do with our decision to highlight this as a problem. I do think it has affected the narrative on this. and I do think it's affected stigma. And I've said it before, I'll be blunt about it. When uh, people dying from addiction, which is a disease, were mostly black and Hispanic, it was seen as a moral failing. When people dying from this disease were, to a larger extent, white, it was recognized as the disease it is.
1: As the leader of the CDC, you took an unusual step of telling doctors to rein in their prescribing practices. So that caused the pain care forum to go to work on Capitol Hill to really undermine your organization. And they press Congress to actually, I find this just appalling. They press Congress to investigate the CDC to uncover any influence from special interests. What happened there?
3: It's really interesting. In in my career, I spent uh, more than a decade fighting infectious diseases, in particular, tuberculosis. And that was hard because the main thing we were fighting there was apathy and the absence of good treatment systems. Then I became health commissioner of New York City and then director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I, I look at data because data means lives. And the data showed that what's killing Americans today are not so much the infectious diseases, though they're still really important to prevent and control. But it's the non-communicable diseases, injury, things like tobacco use, alcohol use, um, unsafe roads, unsafe foods, unhealthy foods. And the result of all of that is that the, the challenge in fighting those conditions is not a microbe. The challenge is an industry. And the industry is looking at their profits. Now, there's nothing wrong with making money ethically. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's something very wrong with making money by making other people sick or killing them. And as a society, I think we have to say there's a big difference between tobacco, alcohol, unhealthy food, and addictive substance industries and other parts of our economy. We're not anti-business. We're anti-businesses killing people.
1: So the investigation, it turned up nothing.
3: No, in fact, at CDC, we took a very strict view about conflicts of interest. There are other federal agencies which have a different philosophy on conflict of interest. Um, some entities say it's okay if you've worked for a drug company as long as you disclose that when you give your recommendations. At CDC, we did not agree with that, and we I don't agree with that because you know, people's opinions change for reasons that they may not be aware of. And if you're getting a paycheck from someone or you have in the future, or you have in the past or you might in the future, you might, in ways that you don't even recognize, have a different opinion than you would otherwise. So our conflict of interest rules were actually stricter than most parts of the federal government. We said if you've got any conflict of interest, you can't be there.
1: To Dr. Frieden's point, opening the door to financial support from industry can create the appearance of impropriety and a very real possibility of corruption. His belief in having strong rules of engagement to ensure conflicts of interest don't arise is reflected in the CDC Foundation's conflict of interest policy. I looked up the conflict of interest clause from a report written by the people who put on the IMPACT conference. Here's what it had to say. The views expressed in this article are those of the authors, none of whom have financial conflicts of interest specifically related to the issues discussed in this article. At the time of the meeting on which this article is based, several authors were employed by pharmaceutical companies, and others had received consulting fees or honoraria from one or more pharmaceutical or device companies. Authors of this article who were not employed by industry or the government at the time of the meeting received travel stipends, hotel accommodations, and meals during the meeting from the University of Rochester Office of Continuing Professional Education with funds from unrestricted grants to support the activities of impact provided by multiple pharmaceutical companies.
3: Now, the companies would like to say that if I've provided education on how to do better prescribing uh, to a hospital. That was a conflict of interest. That's not a conflict of interest. That's doing uh, what some very wonderful doctors have done to try to address improving healthcare. Uh, we also were threatened with a lawsuit from an industry-backed uh, entity. They said, don't produce your guidelines. And they went through and they looked at whether we had dotted every I and crossed every T and uh, we realized that we would have to delay the process by a few months, uh, reopen it, have it as part of public comment. And it was a very interesting process, actually. It, it did delay it by, by a bit, but we got thousands of comments. We read all of them, and they actually strengthened the guidelines because those comments showed us some additional evidence, some proof that not only are opiates much less safe than other ways of treating pain, but they also are less effective. If you take opiates, the way you perceive pain changes, and you'll feel more pain, it'll be it'll hurt more with the same sensation for someone who's not on opiates. So not only are these drugs dangerous, not only are they way less safe than many other ways of managing pain, but they're also not as effective in the long term for most patients. So, but you you publish your, uh, your conflict rules. Absolutely. And we also looked at it very comprehensively at, at CDC. We have a CDC foundation, which gets money from private industry as well as from philanthropy. And we looked very carefully at every kind of donation there to see if there's any conflict of interest. Uh, one of the reasons we issued the first ever guideline on management of acute pain was that there was nothing out there. When we declared this an epidemic in 2011, we began looking for what needs to get done. And it became clear at this point that it was largely, a big fancy word, an iatrogenic epidemic. Iatrogenic, fancy word, meaning the doctor caused it. This was for about three quarters of people addicted to opiates, they had started with a prescription medication. And uh, if doctors could start it, then doctors had a very important role in stopping it. But this meant uh, going against this huge industry that had been pushing pain as a vital sign and this concept of a quick fix. And I think it's also fair to recognize that it's not just industry that was at fault, that there is something in our culture, in our society, where we want a quick fix.
1: Next, we pivot back to my conversation with Chris McGreal to discuss another topic from American overdose, litigation against big pharma.
0: Purdue has used different elements of its company to protect itself in the past. So the 2007 um, prosecution by the district attorney in Western, Virginia, uh, is a very interesting case because it's the only criminal prosecution and conviction against Purdue and its officials so far. And so the prosecutor's guy called John Brownlee. And in the final settlement where Purdue pleaded guilty to misselling their drug, to making these false statements about its uh, safety and its effectiveness um, and misselling it to doctors, um, they they paid $600 million, which is a huge amount of money um, as a settlement, but that was still only a tiny percentage of the money they were making from the drug over the, or they had made from the drug over the previous decade. But they did something else, is Rudolf Giuliani uh, was representing the company, and one of the um, one of the things he was able to get as part of the agreement, partly through political influence in Washington, was that the criminal conviction would be penned on a parent company called Purdue Pharma, uh, Purdue Frederick. Mm. And that's because if Purdue Pharma had be, crin, been criminally convicted, it would have restricted its dealings with the federal government, including the possibility that Medicaid and Medicare would pay for OxyContin. And that might either force it off the market or greatly reduce um, uh, the number of pills that would be sold. So the company was keen that Purdue Pharma did not have a criminal conviction. And so it was pinned on the parent company. um, And that kept the door open to mass prescribing. Uh, Giuliani also helped keep the three executives that were responsible, the company's uh, president, general counsel and chief medical officer out of prison The prosecutor wanted them to go to prison and the deal was negotiated thanks to influence in Washington uh, that that let them away with a fine. The three of them paid a thirty four million dollar fine collectively, which tells you just how much money they were making uh, doing those jobs, if they could afford that kind of uh, uh, fine. And so you can see Purdue now continuing that they're obviously they've realized that the money, their profits are vulnerable. So they've been shifting it around. They've shifted to the family itself. Um, and the, the company makes other drugs, but really, the cash cow has been OxyContin. So um, without it, uh, then Purdue Pharma really isn't uh, a big player in the drug market at all. So they know that its days are numbered. And it may be that they, I mean, they're talking now about bankruptcy. So it may be that they recognize that Purdue Pharma doesn't have a future. Uh, but uh, for now, they're... Um, they're at least trying to protect the money that they've made.
1: Next, we talked about Purdue Pharma turning its sights to the international market.
0: As with the tobacco companies, which once they realized that uh, the market was drying up in America and the developed world because fewer people were smoking, um, they went after the developing world, Africa, China, uh, so they are doing the same with opioids. We can, we can now see that they are pushing this idea that um, people are living in pain, that's a breach of their human rights, and the moral thing to do is give them these drugs.
1: I asked Chris, what do you want people to take away from American overdose?
0: I think Americans in particular, um, I, I, to ask the question why it's happening here and not in other places, and I think the answer to that question um, require some reflection because it's essentially about who runs your medical policy. Um, And in this country, medicine is an industry. In other developed countries, on the whole, it tends to be run by the medical profession. It tends to be run um, as a health service. And the industry has influence and input, but it's also seen as, you know, predatory and it's kept at arm's length. That's not true. One of the things that's uh, in the United States, one of the things that's very clear to me is that pain policy was being written by the medical industry. The influence of these companies was absolutely huge not just in getting the pills out on the market but in getting them prescribed very widely by uh, in really uh, through their influence over um, federal regulators making sure that Doctors were obliged in hospitals to prescribe pills as the first uh, first step in treating pain. the The policy was decided essentially in the marketing departments of the drug companies, uh, and particularly Purdue Pharma. And I think that that is really the biggest takeaway from all of this, which is how does the United States come up with um, medical policy that's controlled by the medical profession or at the, the very least by those who are supposed to regulate the medical profession independently of all this influence. And I think that's an enormously difficult task, uh, given the way healthcare is structured in this country. Um, but uh, without addressing those issues, it, uh, Purdue Pharma makes a good villain, and so do the Sacklers because of the nature of what they've done. But I think it, it would be a huge mistake to pin it just on them. I think the drug industry would love it if it could be portrayed as one bad apple. But actually, the drug industry as a whole was completely complicit in this and drove it through its lobbying. Politicians are complicit. And um, I think the medical profession played its role and was often complicit. And I think there needs to be a serious rethinking about how you decide medical policy in the United States.
1: This concludes the third episode in our series on American Overdose with author Chris McGreal. So what have we learned? We learned that the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry closely collaborated to re-engineer the clinical trial process, and as a result, they eliminated testing dangerous drugs on the most vulnerable population, addicts. We learned that their revised clinical trial process enabled drug manufacturer Endo to get approval for Opana, a high strength drug withdrawn from the market two decades earlier because it was so frequently misused. We learned that the time that has passed since the opioid epidemic began to emerge has done little to change the mindset of many who were in leadership positions with the FDA at the time. Case in point, I asked Dr. Nathaniel Katz, the former FDA advisory board chair, if the FDA's approval process failed the American people in approving OPANA for the U.S. market. Here's what he had to say, and I quote, the FDA approval process worked fine for OPANA. The approval process is designed to approve drugs that are safe and effective when used as intended, and Opana meets those criteria. Opana got into trouble when people started injecting it to get high and developed limb necrosis and other horrible problems. That's like saying we shouldn't approve cars because a few people drove their car off a cliff, he said, end quote. So, I wonder... How is it possible that former leaders can defend the FDA's approval of these opioids when they now know how much pain and suffering they've caused? And how is it possible that industry can pay 75% of the FDA's budget, and yet the people in charge don't think they have influence over what drugs get approved? And I'm wondering, how is it possible that in the middle of an opioid epidemic, an FDA deputy chief can instruct a committee to approve a dangerous new opioid if it isn't any worse than OxyContin because there has to be a level playing field for business? Dr. Katz's comments, his candid comments, reflect a system that's broken, led by people who have failed to learn from their mistakes, creating a national health crisis that I fear will be with us for many years to come. I hope you've enjoyed this series on American Overdose with best-selling author Chris McReal, a deep dive into the policies, politics, and events that led to the worst health crisis in American history. I'd like to thank Chris, along with my other guests that join us for this series, including Congressman Hal Rogers, former Congresswoman Mary Bono, former Director of the CDC, Dr. Tom Frieden, former West Virginia Attorney General Judge Daryl McGraw, and former FDA Advisory Board Chair Dr. Nathaniel Katz. My name is Greg McNeil. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit Cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.